It continues to be an extraordinary period in markets. Uh, we have a bull market in bonds, uh, which usually implies low growth and low inflation. But we also have bull market in equities, and generally that correlates with high growth and high inflation. The two should not be concurrent. Uh, yet here we are again with the two major capital markets sending off very conflicting signals. And what you hear are just market commentators from all parts proclaiming what is right and what is wrong. Uh, so joining me uh, today and actually to discuss some of the events on the first half of the year, more importantly, an outlook for global asset classes and to give some perspective on how we're seeing the world is our coronation portfolio manager and head of research at the Global Developed Markets team, Neil Perdoe. Welcome, Neil, and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Kirsch. Let's start with just a, a quick summary of the backdrop against which we're seeing both global equity and uh, fixed interest assets perform well. It's unusual. Exactly. And over the last year, the key change that you've seen uh, was near the end of last year, and that was a change in central bank policy. Uh, market participants were expecting about four interest rate rises over the next year, and very quickly those expectations U-turned to expecting four rate cuts. And as interest rates dropped, that's obviously a very strong tailwind for bond prices, and we've seen very strong returns in, in bonds. The yields on the U.S. 10-year Treasury have plummeted. There is now $13 trillion of government debt around the world trading with a negative yield to maturity. So investors are, are willing to lend to these entities and receive less than they lay out today. It's a fairly absurd situation, and you can understand why that has pushed other asset classes, which offer growth and which offer yield, um, upwards. And in particular, equities that are seen to be predictable and stable have, have benefited from this interest rate policy. Um, and, and let's just talk about how we were positioned in our portfolios. So I don't think you can escape the fact uh, that this year has been very good for almost all asset classes. And the last decade has been favourable for all risky assets. So it shouldn't be too surprising that our positioning in the multi-asset class strategies is fairly conservative. And I'd classify our equity exposure today as slightly lower than what you might expect through a full cycle. In terms of our other building blocks, so property has come down slightly over the past year as we sold some of our, our US retail positions, which were up around 30% year to date. Fixed income is roughly flat. And what we see is investment grade spreads at close to record lows on top of very low government bond yields. So we've seen few opportunities to add to positions. And our cash holding, which is really a residual based on what we own across the other asset classes, is therefore up slightly. And I'd add that that cash holding is actively managed in conjunction with our fixed income team, and we aim to generate as much return as possible here without taking on undue risk. So by way of example, we are managing that the blended yield on that portfolio is now in the mid to high 2% range, uh, but with duration of, of roughly one year. So we're taking very little risk in that in that bucket. So while the, the fixed income, the conservative positioning is heard, gold has done really well. So we've had an exposure to gold. Yeah, we've actually held gold in our multi-asset portfolios for many years. And if you consider the macro backdrop, the performance of gold has actually been slightly disappointing up until the last six months where it's uh, generated very uh, solid double-digit returns. Uh, and I think the diversification of gold in a multi-asset portfolio is valuable, in particular when the opportunity cost of holding it is zero. And the opportunity cost, when measured against that 13 trillion of negative yielding government bonds, is literally zero. Um, now that 13 trillion is, is a huge number, and just for, for some context, 
if you took the entire stock of South African government debt and multiplied it by 75 times, that's where you'd get to. Um, so if we look to the future relative to cash, we're happy holding between 2 and 4% in gold. And I mean, let's just drill down into the equity component of the portfolio. So within equities itself, what are you seeing in terms of maybe emerging market versus developed market exposure, and then some of the exciting sectors of stock picks that you found that you, you believe have been quite portfolio defining? I think it's true that emerging markets have underperformed developed markets, but it's actually more nuanced than that. So rather than a simple DM versus EM outperformance, it's actually been the US versus everything else. So if you look at performance of developed markets outside the US, they've actually performed roughly in line with emerging markets. So it truly has been a a decade of of US dominance. So that's the first point. The second has been the outperformance of growth, stability, or quality against anything with some perceived cyclicality or, or value. So aside from the Nifty 50 era, which was in the early 1970s, many decades ago, the difference in valuation between these two types of stocks has never been as wide. And of course, the underlying changes in the market structure that we've seen with passive funds attracting huge amounts of flows and a proliferation of factor-based investment strategy has contributed to the momentum characteristics that that these stocks have now taken on. So if you aggregate our bottom-up exposures, we are actually overweight emerging markets, that is in primarily driven by our Chinese stocks. Uh, and over the last 18 months, many of our incremental new buyers have come from Europe. We recently bought two Japanese stocks. That's the first time we've gone back into that market for a number of years. But I wouldn't discount our US exposure. Uh, you know, we are in a low growth environment. The inflationary outlook is extremely benign. And we are aware that structural growth in this type of backdrop is extremely valuable. So we're finding a number of stocks, both in the US and China, whose revenue, never mind earnings, but whose revenue is growing around 20% per year and are trading what we think of very reasonable valuations. Maybe just to look at one or two of the, of, of the actual holdings, because um, our portfolios generally tend to look quite different to what we would see as dominant shares in the index. So maybe in some of the, the, big, the best ideas in the fund, uh, can you talk us to, to a couple of the names? Sure. I'll, let's start with our, our cable names, which we used to own three stocks and now own two of them, Charter and Altice. These are the leading provider of broadband infrastructure to U.S. households. Um, so previously were seen as video providers, uh, and the reasons why they were cheap in our view was a misconception by the market where they were concerned about the loss of video subscribers and weren't understanding the economics and uh, the fact that the stocks were being driven, the growth was being driven by, by their broadband business. If you think about what these businesses really are, uh, you can compare it to an electricity grid. Okay. They own pipes which pass, in Charter's case, 50 million households. Of those 50 million, 26 million have signed up as broadband subscribers. There is no incentive for another provider to come and lay a pipe past that household, uh, just like there wouldn't be an incentive to overbuild an electricity grid, because you double the capital investment that goes into that market, and you don't increase the addressable size of the market. So the economics of a new entrance are terrible. That's the definition of a natural monopoly. The difference between electricity grid and these cable providers is that these are unregulated monopolies. Uh, So we think they have tremendous pricing power, although the threat of regulation will cause them not to abuse that power. Uh, And in the case of Charter, for example, 
if, if you look at their economics, we think looking out three to four years' time, the stock is trading on a, on a free cash flow yield greater than 10%. We think as revenue continues to grow from their resilient subscription model, margins expand, uh, they've recently completed an integration, and they're currently realizing the benefits of, of, the, of that integration, of the increased scale. Capital intensity declines, which means free cash flow explodes. And in this business, they've generally allocated all their free cash flow to buybacks. Over the next three years, they should be able to shrink the company by 20% and is trading, uh, as I said, above 10% free cash flow yield. The other point I'd emphasize on, on our cable names is that we first started doing the work on these stocks in 2014, five years ago. We looked at not just the, the names you own today, but the entire value chain, the competitive set. We've been traveling to meet management and competitors for many years. And at this time last year, the cable names were some of the larger detractors for our funds. And it's only when you've done a comprehensive due diligence on the entire industry, have a firm view of what you think the stocks are worth, understand the risks to the investment case, that you can take advantage of those periods when they do sell off. Uh, and over the last year, we, we, we've benefited from that. Maybe one additional point to touch on is the exposure that the strategy has and has had for a while to the alternative asset management um, sector in the US that has done particularly well. Maybe just talk us through that. Well, I think it's a great example of the fact that our portfolios are built clean slate with no reference to the underlying indices because these stocks were not included in any index. So the alternative asset managers are stocks like Blackstone, Apollo, KKR. It also reflects our long-term horizon when assessing these investments. So we first actually purchased Blackstone in our multi-asset funds in 2011. And when we launched our equity strategies, it was a core holding. And we've held it ever since at varying weights, depending on the underlying attraction. So peak exposure would have been above 10%. And today, uh, as a group, they're, they're approximately 6%. And, and since our initial holding period, Blackstone has outperformed the market by about 13% per year, certainly in, not in a straight line. The underlying reasons for us owning these stocks is very simple and largely unchanged over the last seven years. So if you look at the economics of a leading asset manager, they're some of the best economics of any business out there. Very high return businesses, very asset light, so they don't require any capital to grow. And in the case of these asset managers, you've the alternative asset managers, we think they're actually better than traditional asset managers for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're more profitable. They have a large component of earnings, about 50% in a normal year from performance fees, which drives higher profitability. And they are not subject to the same risk of disruption from passive strategies. So you can't replicate via passive strategies a leverage buyout of a business or an acquisition of an office building or a, a logistics portfolio. So we think those businesses are more resilient from some of the structural challenges that traditional asset managers are facing. Within the alternative space, there is also more greater ability to differentiate between the top and the bottom performers. So they're typically competing or offering funds in less liquid strategies like private equity and real estate. And the difference between the top and bottom quartile is far wider, for example, than in listed equities. Funds we own have demonstrable track records over decades. You can't create that track record overnight. Uh, so once again, less risk of disruption. And what tends to happen is that flows and asset allocators concentrate their mandates 
with those who have demonstrated long-term track records. So our thesis has been that over time the alternative segment will capture a greater share of investments from limited partners. So the share of flows that they've been capturing has been increasing and more than that mandates have been consolidating. So the best of breed managers have, have been gaining share within the segment. That's been playing out over a number of years. Secondly, when we started looking at these, they were just clearly undervalued in our opinion and we could understand why they were undervalued. I mentioned earlier they're not included in, a, in any index and certain investors viewed them as complex and because they're not in index they didn't need to spend the time to understand these businesses. To us that was an opportunity. We couldn't see a catalyst. We didn't need a catalyst because we had a good idea of what they could grow at and what the long-term value was. Um, and, and largely that has played out. So we've exited a number of names and our aggregate positioning um, has, is, is now much lower than, than it was uh, many years ago. Just to, to, to round up in terms of everything we've heard here today, multi-asset class funds still conservatively positioned for some of the risks that we believe that are, are present within global markets at the moment. However, we do think that there's some very, very exciting opportunities one can take advantage of by being a bottom-up stock picker, um, doing thorough research and valuation, and using any of the mispricings that we're seeing as an opportunity to buy in. Um, and we saw the last decade being a mainly U.S. story, but we are not discounting any U.S. stocks, but are starting to see increasingly good opportunities elsewhere in the world as well. Thanks, Neil. Thanks. Coach.